Hello and welcome to the Since I Last Saw You podcast. My name is Jacinta Adubedu, and on this show, I will be interviewing some really creative people to better understand their art form and unpack the creative process behind their work. I will also be providing some commentary on social issues to kickstart meaningful conversations and continue ongoing ones. In today's episode, I'll be doing the latter. I'm going to be talking about why defunding the police cannot be the only answer to tackling police brutality. And as will be the trend for all the commentary episodes, I will be comparing historical events with current ones, which is just to say I'm finna be telling y'all some stories. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder, as well as that of um, Tony McDade and recently Rayshard Brooks, the black community and our allies have been making our voices heard and demanding change. And I was having um, some conversations with various people and somehow found myself researching the origins of the police system in the U.S. And that's really what became the backbone of this episode. So the little information I'm going to be giving on the show today about how policing began in the U.S. barely scratches the surface. So if y'all are interested, I would suggest doing some research on your free time. As good stories go, once upon a time in colonial America, policing was a two-system enterprise. So it was either public or private. And private is exactly what a sounds like personal security hired for a particular purpose you can think of public as i guess a neighborhood watch in fact um, that is what it was called it was called the watch or the night's watch and the idea behind it was protection for the community by the community so people would volunteer to be part of the watch and their main purpose was to alert the townspeople of any imminent danger ironically some criminals were sent to the watch as a form of punishment and some people volunteered for the watch to avoid going to the war um the watch was initially started in cities like boston new york and philly and then it spread from there to other northern cities it was largely ineffective it's like you get what you pay for and you pay nothing because the people who are in the watch volunteer to be there they have minimal to no training and so there were a lot of reports of people falling asleep on duty and people reporting for duty drunk you know after the u.s gained its independence the first organized police force created in the north started in boston in um 1838 after that police forces started springing up in other cities, other northern cities. Now, one reason why there was a shift from community-based policing to something more formal, more bureaucratic, was because of urbanization. Cities were growing. The U.S. was no longer um, a collection of sparsely populated little towns. So as the cities continued to evolve, so did the police force. Um, the force continued to grow and the police force amassed a decent amount of power, okay? And they did this so that they would be able to enforce the law according to the way that people in power wanted it. And the rationale that the police gave was that they needed to be stronger to combat increasing crime that came with urbanization. Now. Dr. Gary Potter, a crime historian at Eastern Kentucky University, made a counter-argument to this whole point of 
combating increasing crime. He calls the whole claim bullshit, right? So instead of talking about crime, he talks about disorder. Now I want you guys to start this, highlight this, memorize this, whatever. The concept of disorder in this context has very little to do with what is objectively wrong and what those in power say is wrong and the kind of overlap that exists between the two. So Dr. Gary Potter put it this way, quote, what constitutes social and public order depends largely on who's defining those terms. And in the cities of 19th century America, they were defined by the mercantile interests who through taxes and political influence supported the development of bureaucratic policing institutions. These economic interests had a greater interest in social control than crime control. Now, this was a pretty lengthy quote and two things I kind of took away from it were one, businesses essentially used their political connections to prop up policing institutions. To give an example of how businessmen and politicians did this, we're gonna look at Boston in the 1830s, right? So during that time, Boston was a large shipping commercial center. And before the police, as we know them today, showed up, businesses used private police to protect their interests. Somewhere along the line, they didn't want to spend money on private security anymore, so they helped create a public entity, the police, to protect their interests. Then they worked with politicians to make sure that the police were paid for using um, public funds, you know, taxes. And the explanation that they gave to people, the public, was that y'all benefit from Boston being a commercial center. So it's part of the collective good to protect Boston's shipping position. So y'all should essentially pay for the police to protect it. Two, the second thing that I picked up from this was whatever benefits businessmen and politicians, at least at that time, maybe to some extent still today, is what counts as order. So in a scenario where workers, you know, protest or go on strike because their wages are low and they have to work long hours and in dangerous conditions, which happened, you know, the police would come in to break the strike, not because the workers would sometimes riot, which would be a public safety concern, of course, but not necessarily for the public safety portion of it, but because workers who are rioting are not working and that's bad for business. For comparison's sake, let's go a little bit off topic here and look at 2018 when the Eagles whooped the Patriots. Ugh, yes. Um, a BBC News report mentioned how cars were damaged, shop fronts looted, people were fighting, two police horses were stolen and later returned. It was a lot. Apparently, there was even a video of this guy who was eating horse shit. Uh, why? I don't know. The point is, people were walling out. You know, people were going crazy. And there were some Officers who were there, obviously, um, Eagles fans, they were hugging, celebrating, cheering. You know, their team just won. And I highly doubt people were pepper sprayed or tear gassed. And this is not to say that nobody called the police on these people that were wilding out. But here's the part of the report that gets me. Um, there's a quote from one of the officers, and it, it's like, um, despite the unruly crowds after the game, police officials say, here's the quote, actually, Celebrations were mostly peaceful, right? Compare that with the protests that have been happening for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and the lot. Think of what police response has been to peaceful protesters and think about how people were quick to use those who were rioting and looting to characterize the majority of those protesting. But I digress. Anyway, back to what we were talking about. For those in power, 
um, to be able to keep calling the shots, right? Keep deciding what order and disorder is or is not. They pushed this narrative of a dangerous class, which is another one of Dr. Potter's terms. The suggestion was that people who engaged in crime were part of a biologically inferior and uneducated underclass, quote, So surprise, surprise, this underclass consisted primarily of poor people, foreign immigrants, and free black people. It was at this point that people in society began to pick and choose what they considered important and what they didn't even want to consider. I guess an example can be if I decide, let's stick with going on strikes because that seems to be my theme for today. If I decide to go on a strike, right, with some buddies of mine because we're being overworked in very hazardous conditions and we're being paid peanuts and we end up losing our jobs because the business owners give our jobs to people who are more willing to take less money and don't really care about the hazardous conditions where they work right and after that we're unable to secure jobs and because of that um let's just say we start drinking and get booked by the cops for public drunkenness which was a big thing at the time The narrative becomes, look at those biologically inferior bums, right? They would rather get drunk instead of make an honest living. Nobody is asking why it's okay for a businessman to have a hazardous workplace and pay such low wages. You know, it was at this point that policing also changed from a reactive enterprise to a proactive one. So the police were no longer coming in after murders to find out who done it. Like you weren't calling police after shit popped off right? Essentially, police were like, you know, let's be proactive. Let's monitor these underclasses to try to stop them before they commit any crimes, which is great. Prevention is better than cure, right? But not when you have police, like increased police presence in neighborhoods where cops have free reign and really believe that they're superior to the people that they're supposed to be protecting. Because these cops are looking for any reason to flex their authority on these inferior people. And now suddenly you're walking outside your house and you fit the description of a suspect and it's all downhill from there right? We're going to pivot to the South, where the premise for the development of the police force wasn't community protection. It was essentially to police slaves. The Slave Patrol, um, the first of which was created in the Carolina colonies, was essentially tasked with chasing, catching, and returning slaves to their masters. The Slave Patrol also served as a physical presence to, I guess, deter slaves from acting up. It's like the equivalent of you being on your best behavior when, I guess, an an adult is around. So they're looking at you, right? They're watching you. Slave patrols also took it upon themselves to kind of decide how to discipline slaves that did not behave. After the Civil War and eventually after you know, slaves became free, these vigilante-style police patrols became full-fledged police departments that enforced Jim Crow laws, which essentially denied free slaves equal rights and access to the political system. Now, all this may have been good contextual information for some people. My take from this, however, from everything I've learned so far is that the police system is not broken. Okay, it was never meant to serve black and brown people. Largely, the police system is just fine. It serves the people it's supposed to serve. Nonetheless, we have a real chance here to affect some kind of change. Okay, after George Floyd's murder, I was on a call with my friend and we were talking about how quickly the black community and our allies had mobilized and risen up. And somewhere in the conversation, I told her, 
if someone asks us what we want, we're screwed. Because right now, you know, how at least I see the black movement is it's very leaderless in the sense that we're not all rallying around one central figure today. All our voices hold equal weight. And so we're all taking ownership and leadership. Ownership and leadership is a collective effort. So if someone went, so what do y'all want? at that time and there's a hundred k of us right having different answers different opinions that might be a problem but a few weeks after that i woke up and see that we're all rallying around the call to defund the police now defunding the police has taken on different meanings but i'm going to address the aspect that talks about the reallocation of funds so on trevor noah's social distancing show he had a lot of prominent guests come in and in that episode, it was an episode about defunding the police. Patrice Cullors, who is one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, explained what the phrase, I guess, defunding the police actually meant, right? And till this day, till this day, that's the explanation I use because that's what makes the most sense to me. And it's really simple for me to understand. So what she said was, what are the things that police have been doing right now that can be given to other groups of people who are better suited, better trained to do that particular thing. Now, this proposal makes sense to me because policing is not supposed to be a one-size-fits-all mechanism. Like, there's a reason why doctors need all those years of schooling so they can specialize in properly attending to their patients. Like, I will buy a three-in-one couch that acts as a regular couch and a futon and a massage chair, and that's a good deal, but that's not what policing is supposed to be. As of now, police don't get anywhere near adequate enough training to be first responders in the event of a mental health crisis or simple mediation and conflict management cases, j just to name a few, okay? So according to the U.S. Department of Justice, the police average about 10 hours of police sensitivity training for these situations. 10 hours. 10. That's like me going to school from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. twice in a week. That's even more than 10 hours right? And someone might say, well, Len, let's train them more. Let's train them better, which doesn't really tackle the situation because the goal isn't to make police a jack of all trades. It's to give all the stuff that police get an average of 10 hours of training for to professionals and leave the police to handle whatever it is they're good at. And when that doesn't happen, you have people like Anthony Hill um, dying at the hands of police. Now, despite my previous argument, here's the kicker. Defunding the police is lacking in one key area, at least to me. So what about the situations in which police officers are already present? Like on the road, you know, when I think of that, I think of traffic stops. And when I think of that, I think of Sandra Bland or Philando Castile, who was shot with his girlfriend in the car and her four-year-old in the back seat. And when the police officers stopped them, the, the, the rationale, which is a quote, he, he went, the two occupants just look like people that were involved in a robbery. The driver looks more like one of the suspects just because of the wide set nose. I couldn't get a good look at the passenger. This guy wasn't convicted, which is a completely different conversation about why it's so difficult to get convictions in cases in which the police are involved. But we are not going to pretend that there are not consequences for police officers who abuse their power, okay? I'm not interested in cops going to jail after they've killed someone, because then it's too late. A life has been lost. Because the goal here, at least, I think, the goal here is not to have less black men and women dying on account of police brutality and racism. It's to have 
no black men and no black women dying on account of police brutality, period. Because one more life lost is one too many. And the fact still remains that we're not really fighting the police system. We're actually fighting the underlying racism that supports the police system, which is something totally, completely, and utterly different, right? And the police are not the only racist agency out there. As I say this, I think of the maternal mortality rate for black women in the U.S. It is alarming. And if that's something you don't know about or that's something that, you know, you don't really question... You should start questioning it. Shooting me with a gun is not the only way you can kill me. And we all saw what happened to George Floyd. But how do we make sure that the professionals that are potentially coming in to replace the police as a part of this whole defund the police movement aren't just going to find another way to do what the police are already doing? I feel like we have one shot at passing some legislation that actually works because the world is watching right now and keeping the U.S. honest to an extent. Unfortunately, the next tragic thing might happen somewhere else and the world is just going to shift its view and we might just have to wait for another George Floyd before we can address this issue again. So do we just pass legislation to defund the police when we haven't necessarily ironed out the kinks or what I think are the kinks and what you guys might think are the kinks and just hope for the best, right? Or do we take our time to iron out the kinks and lose our window of opportunity? At some point, we've got to do something besides just talking about doing something. You guys might have learned a few things from today's episode, um, heard some things you already know, disagreed with some of my opinions, or agreed with some of them. I welcome all of these. And I really do look forward to connecting with y'all. So y'all may have some questions and answers or some comments, and I definitely want to hear all of those. But first, thank you for tuning into this episode. And Please, please, please be sure to keep up with future episodes as best as you can. Follow and interact with the podcast on IG at S-I-L-S-Y underscore podcast. You would think I wasn't the one who made it by how difficult it was for me to say. Um, it's S-I-L-S-Y underscore podcast. Send me a DM. I'll be sure to respond. I might throw in a couple dad jokes in there because I do like dad jokes. Also, feel free to send me suggestions. Leave some reviews for the podcast. Tell me what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of. And lastly, take care of yourselves. And thank you for tuning in.